welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click. Today, we're going to be learning from Andres Glusman, who helped launch some huge brands in the early days of digital, such as Meetup.com. Now the co-founder of Do What Works, Andres helps brands gain a competitive advantage by understanding what's working and not working for other brands to help prioritize their own changes. We'll be talking about my favorite topic today, conversion rate optimization. So let's get Andres on now. Hi, Andres. Thanks for joining me today. Would you mind just just introduce yourself, give us a bit of your background and how you've got to where you are today? Yeah, I'm Andres Glusman. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Do What Works. I have been involved in online customer acquisition since the very early days of the internet, since the late 1990s, and ran some of the first online ads you can run, ran some of the first experiments you can run as a result, became one of the first people in at, at meetup.com, helped launch that, made their first $14 of revenue, took on every single role you can have pretty much over the course of a, of a decade and a half at meetup, through that, had an acquisition, and that eventually bought me the time and the experiences and to start my new thing, which was very much solving the pain that I felt when I was at Meetup. Yeah. So do you want to give us a quick, a quick intro to that? What is what are, what are you doing now? Yeah. So Do What Works is a product that helps growth leaders do what works. It, we built an engine that detects the experiments that are being run on growth for any company and we use that data in terms of what's winning and losing to help our clients write copy on their ads using AI. We use that data to help clients optimize their websites to get better conversion rate optimization by leveraging the experiments that have won and lost for everyone else in order to not waste time on the things that don't move the needle and instead focus their attention and resources and time on the things that do. Okay, brilliant. So yeah, how do you get customers clicking? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, what's funny about it is it's, it's definitely a problem I've been solving for two decades since the earliest days of clicks. And it's never been easier. It's never been harder <laughs> in some regards because we are in an era right now where the technology makes it possible to get ads up and running in a flash, to even get experiments up and running in ads in a flash. It is possible to get a website launch with no code. It's possible to run experiments on your website. It's easier than ever. Problem is it's easier for everyone, right? And with AI coming on board, it's even easier in theory. It's also a lot noisier. So it means that the experiences that you're creating for folks all over the place are suddenly competing with so many different options, so many different things that people could click on. And so the real question is not so much like, how do you get stuff launched or get it out there? It's how do you figure out the things that people are going to respond to? And by having a very, very, very keen idea or really focusing in on that question, which is, okay, what is it that people will respond to? And how do I figure out those themes as quickly as I possibly can? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. So you mentioned uh, conversion rates. Obviously, that's something I'm quite big on as well. It's what we do. So why like why is conversion rate optimization important? Yeah, why should brands be doing it? Sure. Well, I don't need to sell it to you probably, but as, as you well know, conversion rates are sort of this magic metric that in a time when budgets are being cut, when you're trying to do more with less, it's actually this metric that gives you more results for the money you spend. When it comes to growing, you're either going to spend more money and be on more places, right? You're going to reach more people or you're going to get a larger portion of the people that you're reaching to become your customer. It costs a lot more money to reach more people, <laughs> but you're, especially these days. And so if you can improve your conversion rate, 
only good things happen. What happens when you improve your conversion rate? Your volumes go up. Your cost of per customer goes down. Your ability to outspend your competitors on ad auctions goes up. And, and so suddenly you're in a privileged position where it costs you less than it costs your competitors to acquire the same customer. That means that you can put yourself at the front of the line and you can do a lot of things that your competitors can't. So it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving in terms of the why behind why do it. There's a large, large, large potential impact when you can get it to succeed. Yeah, and I suppose it it then also allows you to keep spending, right? So that you know the more efficient you are with each dollar that you're spending to acquire customers, you know you you could just say, well, we'll spend the same ten thousand dollars and we'll we'll get ten percent more people, but you could also say, well, why don't we spend eleven thousand dollars and get even more customers as well? That's exactly right. And your competitors can't do that. So it gives you this amazing option. You can either choose to bank it as profit, right? You can get that 10% more more volume for the money you're spending, or you can use it to outspend your competitors. And in certain places, you know, a 10% improvement on your on your like bid might yield much more than 10% more traffic because you're sort of really kind of knocking out your competitors in that regard. So you can actually put yourself in a privileged position if you're in a spot where your competitors just can't match it. You can take over a lot of share that they're just not in a position to be able to grab. Yeah. Yeah. I remember an interesting podcast episode I did. Could be like 100 episodes ago now. It was quite a while ago. He talked about the profit curve. And what this was, obviously, you hit a certain point where, if, if I get this right, it's been a while since I looked at it. You hit a certain point where your ad spend becomes less profitable. But actually, what he was saying was, if you keep going, keep spending, keep raising your bids, you actually reach a point where you are profitable again because you are acquiring the more higher value customers, I think. I've probably explained it really, really badly. But essentially, yeah, it, it was on the lines of, you can now afford to bid higher because you are profitable, your your competitors can't because they yeah they're not converting as well. I I butchered that explanation of it. I'm sure there's a lot of science in there. It, it, you're giving me flashbacks to my friends in college that were trying to convince me that the third, fourth, and fifth pint were actually the ones that where you needed to drink in order to be able to get to the seventh, eighth, and ninth pint of, of beer uh, as well. So it it sounds a little crazy, but I, I do actually get the theory. I think, which is I think. The underlying theory might be that you, at a certain ad spend, might be reaching a local maximum in terms of who you're able to get in front of and how. And there might there are theories of the number of times you need to see an ad. So a consumer needs to see an ad or a buyer needs to see an ad before actually making the purchase. And stopping just short of that threshold, there's no value in stopping just short of that threshold. But if you can get past a specific threshold, perhaps... That gives you the opportunity to to become get access to a, a new new set of buyers or, or reach people who never reached a threshold, and now you're in a new sphere. It's an interesting theory. I actually never seen data to support it, so I'd love to see the data that supports it. But but I can understand the argument around it. Yeah, well, I can, I can try and uh, I'll dig it out afterwards and, and send it over to you. I mean, it, it it made sense when he explained it to me. I just can't remember it exactly. <laughs> cool. So. How how do people do it then, right? So you know, Sarah's not. It, it's not the easiest thing to do. If you want to invest money in it, put time and effort and resource into it, and get those those increases, what do you need to do to to make sure you you run successful tests? 
That's right. So it's a good news, bad news situation. It is never been easier to run and launch a test. Thanks to the Adobe's of the world with their platform Optimizely, Google Optimize. All these platforms are making it easier and easier to launch experiments. So like getting it out the door is not trivial, but it's never been easier. And so that's the good news. The bad news is that getting it out the door in a way that actually yields results is the part that you really need to be solving for. And according to Optimizely, 80% of the experiments that are run on their platform do not positively move the needle. Which if you think about that, it's like one in five, eight out of 10 months that you'll spend in a year are devoted to things that only produce learning. And that's kind of a crazy number. Like, if, like, yeah. When you put it like that, right? So most people would say, you know, you spend eight out of 10 months doing tests that are, are not generating results, you know, performing worse than the control. But actually the way you phrased it, right? You're getting learnings. I think that's, that's an important thing people miss. It's true. It's true. There's sort of an expression that I love, which is experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. And, and in some regard, learning is what you get when you don't get the results you want. You know, the, the, our point of view is, is that the reason why those results are so poor, though the success rate is so poor, is because everyone is recreating the wheel for themselves. Everyone is redoing every experiment on their own and no one is learning from anyone else. And so if you think about it, and uh, we see this all the time. I see somebody running a test of, of a layout on their pricing page. And I'll look in the industry and I'll see four other people running the exact same experiment within three months of that person. Just by coincidence, we see a lot of experiments. We see 15,000 experiments, but we see people running the exact same test. If they're all running the same thing, they're all learning it in parallel. And, and so they're only able to learn from their own results, which is sort of, can you imagine the state of science if you're only able to learn from your own experiments? Like if, 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 if the scientists in a laboratory could only learn from the other scientists in a laboratory, that there'd be no innovation. There's the, the, the pace of change and the pace of, of progress would be extraordinarily slow. Yeah, I get that. But at the same time, isn't there the argument that your audiences are different, your, your messaging is different. So, you know, by, by just taking other people's tests, you have to assume that everything else is the same. It's a very good question. The nuance is very important and it is not the truth that there's a one size fits all solution for a way that a website should work or what copy should work. It's extraordinarily important to understand what kind of buyer you're talking to, consumer versus business. Even within business, are you talking to a product-led growth oriented business where it's sort of like, I expect a free trial. Is it a sales driven motion? There's a lot of different kinds of products mid-market versus enterprise versus solopreneur, like the needs and what you need to deliver are different. What's extremely fascinating though, is that we're seeing because we're able to look at the data points across all of them, is that there are certain areas that you see very consistent trends where something is just not working across the board. It's often the case that it's a thing that's conventional wisdom that everyone tells you to do. The coolest part though, which is what I really believe in, is what you really want to be doing is not just is not looking at the general idea that, oh, okay, Netflix did this one time and therefore me in the business world should be doing should immediately copy this thing for my B2B product to drive leads. What you really want to be doing is learning from the lead gen products that are out there that are running similar experiments and choosing who you learn from. 
as much as you possibly can. And the really, 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 really important thing with all of this is we're we're trying to change behavior and we're trying to like make people do things differently than they've done before. And even in the world of science, when you're being very rigorous about putting like like drug testing, whatever the case may be, we're approximating truth. And so your goal always, and the keep the thing to keep in mind is not whether you're right or wrong. It's are you doing better than just guessing? Are you doing and how much better are you doing? How much more time are you saving? Because we're all guessing. Even when we're running experiments, we're guessing. And you know, educated guesses. Exactly. The advantage to running an experiment is that you learn at the end of the at the end of the experiment what worked and didn't work, and you're a little bit smarter for the next one you're gonna run. And it's really important to know that you still might be wrong. Like you're not going to necessarily nail it even when you got when you got the learning from your own test. But it puts you in a place where your odds are much much better. And so your kind of your benchmark is 20%, 1 in 5. And if you can get yourself to 2 in 5, you've just doubled your impact. And all those good things we talked about at the start of the call, <laughs> more volume, more lower CPC, lower everything, the good the the ability to outbid your competitors. Those all become the result when you're able to get these wins that are very hard to attain. And so it's worth doing if you can if, and if you can get the odds to be stacked in your favor, you're more likely to get more of them in a year. And that's ultimately the game we're playing. And, and I think the important thing to understand is just that you're playing a game that's rigged. It's, it's sort of stacked against you. It's not really rigged. That's a little mean. But you're playing a game and the odds are not in your favor. And if you know that going in, then you should play the game differently than if you believe going in that you're going to win eight out of 10 hands, which is the opposite of what was normally going to happen. Yeah. Well, there's, the, I don't know what it's called, but there's the thing about everyone, everyone rates themselves above average, like better. So, which, yeah, everyone, yeah, everyone thinks they're better than average. That's something which, which obviously isn't true. And that's the same applies here. One thing you mentioned, which, yeah, a lot of, a lot of companies don't do is even the losing tests right they've they've got value they've got insight even if that insight is purely you would have lost money if you had put this feature on the website and left it there that's that's enough learning to think okay cro and a b testing is worthwhile doing right even if you get literally nothing else from it that's it's very true because i've been involved with lots of organizations that have just said hey we'll just run pre-post we'll just launch the thing and we'll see and then it takes forever to figure out whether or not the thing you changed made a difference. And by the time you unpack all the data, by the time you actually know what's going on, more often than not, you've lost a lot of money. Like when you're wrong, it takes forever to figure it out and you've lost a lot of money. So there's definitely learning there. The, the reality though, and kind of the reason why folks like me in the early days of the Lean Startup Movement sort of got a lot of people critiquing the, the movement, which I was a part of, is because... Nobody wants to lose. <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to get the experience. It's, it's sort of like that Steve Jobs quote that even people who want to get to heaven don't want to die to get there. Yet in the same way, I don't. Uh, people who don't like people want to get the win. They, they, you know, learning is sort of the byproduct on the way to it, and you need to be okay dealing with it. In the same way, you need to be okay dealing with soreness as you lift weights and look to get stronger. That's just a byproduct. But would you rather not be sore? Yes. Would you rather not lose? Yes. Nobody likes losing. It's just sort of how can you figure out the role it plays and how to keep it minimal so that you're getting more of what you want and less of less of the pain, right? We would just sort of human nature. I think 
it, it doesn't help that, you know, 90% of content on social media is we were successful, we've done really well with this, everything's great, business is booming. And even the same people don't post the, the, the bad stuff, the losses. And so it does, it can give you that feeling that, you know, if, if you are struggling or, or having a few, you know, losing tests or whatever, you're thinking, well, what's wrong with me? Like, why am I, why is it, why is everything going well for them and nothing for me? And yeah, it, obviously it's not like that. They are, they are suffering possibly just as much, but they just, they just shout out about the wins. That's such a great analogy, Will. You're 100% right. That it is, some people call that success theater, but they just put it out there and they're just making themselves, make it look like everyone around you is killing it when in fact everyone's really struggling. And part of the reason I really like to be so vocal about that 80% number is I just think it's important that you understand what the reality is and, the, and that you optimize your psyche around it and that you optimize your workflow around it to be able to progress through. And very, very importantly, that you set expectations with your, your your colleagues, with your managers, with your clients, with whoever is depending on you about what the likely outcomes are so that you don't four months later come back and say like, well, where's the, where's the results? And you're like, well, we've learned a lot. That, that's not the conversation that people want to have with you. Yeah, exactly. So why, why do you think so many tests fail? Like everyone, it, yeah, I, I, pretty much everyone. I, I doubt... I doubt there was anyone who was running a test thinking, ah, it's probably not going to work, right? Because, well, what's the point, right? So everyone is running tests thinking, for some reason, I think this is going to be a winning test that's going to move the needle. So why do eight out of 10 tests fail? I, it's it's a, such a good point. So the, the biggest reason is that when you're running an experiment, you're usually trying to change a behavior. And it's very, very, very hard to do. So one is, is just acknowledge that it's hard. Two is that your best guess is at best an assumption. And so it's based on a faulty assumption about how people would respond to something. And there are lots of things you can do to try and get closer to making the right assumption. If you're making the wrong assumption, no matter how good a job you do at executing it, no matter how beautiful it is, no matter if you do a great job getting the right people to the site, it's just going to fail. And, and so, you know, you can get those, you can get signal. And the number one thing I sort of think about there is signal, is how do you get as much signal as possible to give you a reason to believe that what you're looking to do is going to work versus give you a reason to believe that maybe this is not worth spending another day on. And as you're saying, everyone, the default position is feeling like it's going to work, which is why we'd be crazy not to have that position. We'd probably be very depressed if we didn't think that in general. <laughs> but, but with that in mind, what we could do is if you, is, is you can gather signal through any means necessary is always sort of what I like to say. So it's like, you know, you can, sure, you can use our platform like ours to like gather experiments from people and see what other people are doing. You can do usability testing on a mock-up and gather qualitative feedback or insights that gives you a very quick signal around oh, this, this thing that I thought was a problem is actually not really a problem for people. Or maybe you could do a usability test on a competitor. You know, if you are a company, and I'm trying to think of a random company, if you are Hello, if you're competing with HelloFresh, maybe, you know, what you could do is actually usability test their pricing page. It, just because they're, they're doing a thing that's related to what you think about doing and see what people or how people respond to it. If people 
behave in the way you would think. And invariably, what ends up happening though is that time is scarce. You're under a lot of pressure to get it to, to get something out the door. And there's a little bit of a fallacy in terms of how you measure velocity, which is velocity is often measured by how quickly something goes from conception to launch. And the problem with that measurement in part is, is more that is you don't think about how quickly the time it takes to let the thing run and getting accurate data. And so what it really should be measured in is like time to time to insight. The time it takes you from like the idea to actually knowing if it's going to work or not or getting the thing to work. And oftentimes when you don't do the work up front to do the proper research up front, you more than pay for it on the back end when you're trying to piece together if it worked or not, or more importantly, why didn't it work and what could we do differently? And therefore you're repeating or, or running the same cycle over and over again after the fact, a little bit of, of, of insights early on will save you a ton of time on the back end, which is ultimately how you should be measuring velocity. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, from what I've seen, at least when, when people rush tests out and they're, and they're, you know, their velocity for testing is really high they tend not to analyze the tests afterwards because they don't they don't view it as well like optimization they view it as like feature adding and you know improvements to the website so each test is its own just it's completely separate own little thing and once it's done you you either implement or don't and then move on that's you see from people who don't put that research in that's right and so there's no there's no generalizable learning there's no sort of idea that you can get, get from it aside from it worked or didn't work. People clicked, people didn't click. <laughs> and that's that's learning. It's not very useful learning. Or it's, it's, it's of limited value relative to what you could have gotten with a little bit more design, right? With a little bit more thought around the experimentation. Yeah. Yeah, a bit more research. I mean, I, I know I've run, I've run plenty of tests which haven't been successful first time, but we've looked at it and said, but we did the research. You know, we, we spoke to customers, we... We reviewed heat maps, you know, whatever we, whatever relevant research. So why didn't this work well? And they said, well, oh, well, maybe, yeah, maybe the execution's wrong. So we retest it, and then I've had really successful tests. So it's you know, a, a lot of people would just say, oh, well, obviously people don't care about this information. And it's well, no, maybe we put the information in front of them in the wrong way. Could be the, yeah, could could be wrong time, wrong place. Could be just wrong format. Yeah, could could be a number of reasons why people didn't respond well to it it's exactly right and you're the process you're describing is one which you're you're triangulating in on the on the solution through every piece of signal you can to approximate a truth and that's all we can hope to do is get as close to a truth as possible knowing that it's not possible to really have the ultimate unless you can crawl into somebody's head and crawl into millions of people's heads you can't know the the hundred percent truth but your, your goal is to get as close to that as you possibly can yeah well, that, I mean, that sort of thing, right? You can't, you can't be fully, fully optimized. It's never, you know, if you're driving decent traffic to a website, you're probably never going to get even above 10% conversion rate because, you know, you've always got browsers, block, you know, people viewing blog content at, at different stages of the funnel and, and, and stuff. And I know it's, it's a bit of a different conversation, really, but I think that's, that's one thing a lot of people miss as well. And, and, the the one question that I really hate, which I get on almost every discovery call, what's the benchmark for our industry? Which just just it it doesn't make sense. It's not a doesn't matter. 
it doesn't matter purely because if I if I say the benchmark is two percent and you're at two percent, so, uh, so many people say, "Oh, well, we're at the benchmark," and they seem to be happy with that. But when it's like, "Well, no, the benchmark is the average," right? So you want to be doing better, but also, given that you always want to be better, the benchmark doesn't matter. What matters is that you're better than what your conversion rate was a week ago, a month ago. That's right. So, That's right. It, yeah. It's human nature. It's, it's, it's human nature for sure to compare and uh, versus, you know, there's the classic stuff you'll see all over, all over YouTube. You know, you want to compare yourself to, to yourself yesterday. You want to compare to, to who you were yesterday or what you were doing yesterday versus, versus what the person in the business next door is doing. Yeah. Oh, one thing I, w- I wanted to mention just, to, just reminded me of that. When you mentioned a lot of people will just implement something and then wait to see what happens. And a lot of the time they lose money. I have not, I am yet to see a website redesigned that has significantly moved the needle. Uh, by significantly, I mean more than a few percent, right? It's, it's, it's so rare. It's, it's just so rare. And, you know, I actually I kind of worked on one recently because they'd already, they'd committed to it and then brought me in. So I was like, well, okay, well, I have to help you on a redesign then. But the website is beautiful love it and it and it does work a bit better but from what i've seen so far the metrics haven't really changed because fundamentally the website's the same it just looks a bit different actually sorry how do i keep going on we, we haven't actually we didn't really improve the user experience we didn't really add much information because we knew that was something that had to be done afterwards yeah the other thing that happens a lot which is so funny i've been involved now like i saying since the late 90s and and it is almost always been the case that where you're not when you're not changing the functionality you're just changing the design of of an experience and doing a redesign the word redesign usually is like nails on a chalkboard to growth people and and because what invariably happens with the redesign is, in fact, not only does it not move the needle positively, more often than not, it actually hurts. And the organization has a lot of, there's a lot of movement in an organization. There's a lot of political capital that's being used up in an organization. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of arguments. There's a lot of like time and energy being spent. But what's ultimately happening when you're doing a redesign is you're taking an experience and you're now making a thousand assumptions. So you're taking something that's been optimized over some period of time. And I sort of joke, it's like playing 52 card pickup, which for people who don't have older siblings, 52 card pickup is when you throw a deck of cards in the air and then you the game is to go pick them back up and put it back in a deck. When you're redesigning a site, you are changing everything. And some of those things are going to work and some of those things are not going to work. But because you did it all at once, because you did it haphazardly, you're inhibiting forces and you're depressing forces, your forces that are helping and hurting are counterbalancing and you're really more often than not in my experience going to end up launching with the things that are less likely to work and what i've seen and what we try encourage what we encourage people to do is to think about it as building blocks and to sort of work from optimized chunks of things because the the flip side of a redesign that is that you're optimizing at the one pixel level right so instead of changing everything you're changing only the tiniest little things and it, maybe you're changing a tiny thing that's not core to the user experience. So that's not central in the user journey where it's like not related to the core action they're taking. What ends up happening there is you're very precise. You have very good data 
on what on whether that made an impact or didn't. But what you just did is you spent a month learning that. And so when the aperture is too small, when the change is too tiny, it actually doesn't move the needle either. And, and so the, the the it's a Goldilocks question, which is how do you assemble the right building blocks of things at the right scale? So it's like, how do you have in, introduce the right concept, this right argument that you're making in there? Are you conveying value? Are you conveying, conveying how it compares to, to people's other decisions? Are you conveying how to make the decision? Are you conveying the discount in an appropriate way. These are all very, very important things to do. And you need to sort of hone in at the right level of focus by using building blocks that are not too small and obviously not 52 card pickup. Yeah. I think so. something just kind of occurred to me based on something you were saying. When you do that website redesign, so loads of people do it because they think the website's not good enough. There's a lot that's wrong with the website. So let's redesign and improve it. When you do a redesign, though, what also happens is you redesign the stuff that's working. So you are literally, you're throwing away everything and starting from scratch. So you're not, yeah, you're not actually redesigning and and hoping that just a few of these extra changes will make a difference. You're actually just saying, we'll get rid of the entire website and just put something completely new in front of people and hope that it's better because we think we've incorporated some of the previous side into it. Yeah, it has it, every time we're in it, it's mostly a cosmetic change. I have yet to see it work. I we work with so many amazing product and growth leaders. Every time the word redesign comes up, they all have the same sort of like knowing smile on their face. They sort of know what they're in for. And and it, it's really, really painful. The the flip side is when early on at Meetup, there was a full redesign of the core like functionality of, of the product. And it fundamentally changed how it worked based on the behaviors we were seeing from people that were working and how they were hacking our system to do the thing. And we changed all of Meetup to reflect that experience. That had a profound impact. That had a humongous impact, but that wasn't a cosmetic redesign in terms of how something is being presented. It was a fundamental shift in how it works and the decisions that drove that were driven by actually witnessing human behavior of people trying to do things and and not being able to and incorporating that into the users so you bet you basically did your research first and then said well everyone is using this workaround so let's let's do that interestingly so tesla just released an update which i'm so grateful for basically i can now control the temperature of the car from the steering wheel couldn't do it before the only thing I could do is change the volume. So I, I'd have to like glance over to the side while driving to try and like on the touchpad, which actually I think makes it more difficult than using physical buttons because you can feel for the buttons, right? So I've got to like tap a button to turn it on. I've got to try and tap the buttons to uh, you know change the temperature up and down. But now they've, re- they've released the thing, so I can just I can just do it from the wheel. Which love that, you know. I just love innovation. And here's what I love about that is, duh, right? Of course you should be able to do that. It's so brilliant. And like, there's a great quote. Michael Porter says that strategy is the search for the obvious. And and it's really like so self-evident that you're, of course, your temperature control should be on your steering wheel. Such a, an important feature of a car that everyone uses. And yeah, I mean, it was pretty, pretty much the first, first thing I said to my brother, because he's got one as well. I said, what? Is there any way to t- to change the temperature without using the touchpad? No. 
oh, okay, that's that's weird. But actually, even better, you can decide what the control does. So I've set it to temperature. You can also set it to do how how strong the air blows, and there's maybe two other settings I can't remember. So they've they've just massively increased in, improved the experience by changing the functionality, not by redesigning what the the, the temperature looked like on the screen, which which I'd still have the same problem of having to to look over to it. Yeah, cool. Anything else you want to touch on with with CRO testing? No, I feel like you've covered a really good ground in terms of like when you get people to the website, how do you get them through the front door? We sort of say get people to the front door and through the front door. And, and so I think we covered a lot of ground on how to get people through the front door. Yeah. Awesome. So just before we finish then, is, is there anyone in the e-commerce world or marketing world that you'd want to sit down for lunch with and pick their brains? Yeah. it's So the number one thing that I value is innovation and being able to come up with those breakthroughs and get down to the first principles and see things in ways that others haven't. And so anybody who can do that is somebody I admire and that I just really want to talk with and just enjoy a conversation with. It, it From my point of view, in the last 20 years, 30 years, it's hard to find somebody who's done that more profoundly than Jeff Bezos. I, I can't think of anybody who's had a larger impact on not just on underlying web behaviors, underlying what's possible on the web, underlying user experience, underlying thoughts around experimentation, underlying thoughts around what it takes to run a business, being bold and daring. And I mean, shoot, you're even launching AWS outside, like from Amazon is a crazy, powerful, amazing bet that is now one of the hugest drivers of of their industry, of, of other industries too. It's amazing. I, I can't think of anybody else that I'd want to well, that, that I think would have more profound impact on the, on that world. I, I believe this. Is it their biggest revenue source? If I'm not mistaken, if they spun that out, it would be one of the largest companies in the world. Yeah. And yet, 95% of people don't have a clue what it is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm long on Amazon. I, I, I'm going to own Amazon stock for a very long time, just for that very reason. Yeah. Cool. And just if you've got one final piece of advice for brands. For brands, yeah, the number one piece of advice would be that testing is hard and that you should definitely do it, but don't wander around in the fog. Do it in a way that, that, that leverage, like get the insights as fast as you can, get signal early so that you don't wander around a fog and that you can actually get to the good stuff faster because all of these great things will happen. So just, just know that it's going to be really hard. Know that it's going to be a process. And figure out how to go through that in a way that will get you where you want to go. Because the out, the other side of it is really profoundly like high impact and great. You just got to get there. Yeah, awesome, cool. Thanks for that. If anyone wants to get in touch, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, so our our website is dowhatworks.io, and I tend to spend time on LinkedIn. I like being on LinkedIn is my is my social channel of choice. So you can find me at, at Andres Glusman, but just Glusman is the, is the handle on LinkedIn. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Andres. Yeah, my pleasure. As Andres pointed out, the high failure rate for a lot of testing programs is simply down to not having a clue what to do and how to go about determining what to actually test. Ideas shouldn't come out of thin air. They should come from research. Ideally, your own data and customer research. But if you can also learn from what other brands are doing, why shouldn't you add that to your process? 
if your research is telling you one thing, but the data shows that, you know, 20 other businesses have tested this and none deployed it, it may mean, you know, not to write it off because, of course, what one what works for one business may not work for another, uh, but it might mean just prioritise something you're more confident is going to be a winner. If you'd like to learn more from Andres, you can find him on LinkedIn. Any other podcast questions, feedback or guest requests, please send them over to will at customerswhoclick.com or DM me on LinkedIn. Next up, I've got Georgie Carter joining me. We're going to be talking about how brands can use segmentation to improve their customer retention. But until then, keep those customers clicking. Oh, 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 oh,